This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, Iranian spies exposed for watching a home in Australia, the operation revealed by the Home Affairs Minister concerned about foreign interference. Also, Olympian Peter Bowles' doping suspension is lifted, but investigations continue with supporters demanding answers. How could you rely on a test where you you think it's positive the first time, but you're probably not sure? And the second time, you think it's negative, but now they're saying, well, we're not sure about that either. How can that be a reliable test? And a rough road ahead for businesses, borrowers and shoppers. A major bank now expects another three interest rate rises this year. Personally, I would probably prefer them to do less than that, but that's not what we're paid for. We're paid to say, what will they do? I think three is probably the medium sort of forecast you would do, given where we are. Thanks for your company. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill has revealed Iranian government operatives have been conducting surveillance on an opponent of the authoritarian regime here in Australia. In a speech outlining foreign interference as a profound and growing threat, the minister said Australia's domestic spy agency, ASIO, had detected and shut down the operation in which the Iranian government followed, photographed and watched an Iranian-Australian connected with protests against the regime. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. To Iranians living in Australia, it comes as no surprise they may be targeted by the authoritarian regime. Sarah Zahadi is an Iranian-Australian lawyer based in Perth. We've always been aware of the fact that there are possibly agents and spies amongst the community members. And so there's always been a question mark as to how much you can trust someone in the community. As an activist with the Women, Life, Freedom movement, which advocates for the rights of women and girls in Iran, Sarah Zahadi is aware she's a target of the Islamic Republic of Iran. There was a certain intimidation event that occurred um, quite close to my workplace and it seemed that I'd been followed and photographed on my way to work following an SBS radio interview that I had done, the first of its kind that I had done. Um, So yeah, there is definitely, I think I speak on behalf of the community at large when I say people do feel that they are likely to take on a risk if they are open about their activism, even if they show up at um, a protest that's in a public space. There is that fear that they might be photographed and those photographs might be sent to to the IRI to identify who it is that's taking part. During a speech at the National Security College at the Australian National University this morning, Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill revealed Iran had been conducting surveillance of an Iranian-Australian person on Australian soil. Last year, ASIO disrupted the activities of individuals who had conducted surveillance in the home of an Iranian-Australian, as well as conducted extensive research of this individual and their family. I just want to step back and and, um, and and say this again. We have here someone living in our country who is being followed, watched, photographed, their home um, invaded by people at the direction of a foreign power. The person targeted by the authoritarian Iranian regime had been connected to protests organised in response to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in Iran. Claire O'Neill says foreign interference poses a profound and growing threat in Australia and declared the government will seek to bring the issue into the light by publicly naming countries involved. To those states who operate in the shadows, we have a very simple message. We are watching 
continue. When asked by the moderator, ANU's Rory Medcalf, on why the minister had focused on Iran rather than other well-known foreign interference actors such as Russia and China, Claire O'Neill said she wanted to broaden the conversation. This is not just a China problem, although it is a China problem. Um, And it's really important for me to be open and honest about the different directions from which this comes. Although the minister's decision not to directly name China in her speech has been seen as deliberate by some observers. It struck me as really odd that the minister didn't specifically mention China because China is such an obvious example of a country that is conducting foreign interference. Vicky Shu is an investigative journalist and senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Because of my reporting in the last few years on China's human rights records and uh, national security issues, personally, I have been followed, harassed, and, you know, strange men have shown up at my doorstep. Vicky Shu says she's been in regular contact with police and security agencies and believes more should be done in response to individual reports of foreign interference. When investigations are conducted on my cases, uh, information isn't feed back to me. I don't know the full picture around the people who are following me. I don't receive enough um, practical help. I don't receive enough actual um, you know, safety measures to, to really feel at ease to be able to do my work safely in Australia. Sarah Zahadi echoes those concerns. She reported her experience of being followed and photographed to the National Security Hotline and says there wasn't much follow-up. The biggest concern for her and other expats is that their friends and relatives in Iran will be punished for their activism abroad. Someone back home who is within the Islamic Republic's jurisdiction and therefore at their whim will be the target of some threat or uh, will be detained and it is the biggest ticket, as I say, to quieting the uh, the activities and repressing us. That's Perth lawyer Sarah Zahadi ending Bridget Fitzgerald's report. Australian Olympian Peter Bowl is preparing to get back on the track after his provisional suspension for doping was lifted. Bowl was benched last month for testing positive to the banned substance EPO, which can improve performance by boosting red blood cells. But further testing on the sample didn't match the first results, so he's cleared to start training again. Sport Integrity Australia says investigations are continuing, though, as Stephanie Smale reports. After a month of uncertainty, Peter Bowl's lawyer, Paul Green, has declared the Olympian's name has been cleared. The sun is shining for Peter Bull. I told everyone he was innocent and I turned out to be right. In a statement, Peter Bull describes the last month as nothing less than a nightmare, saying he wishes the results of his first sample hadn't been leaked. He also reinforced his innocence, saying he has never in his life purchased, researched, possessed, administered or used synthetic EPO or any other prohibited substance and never will. Paul Green says the doping saga has taken a toll. Obviously, he's elated. He's relieved. He's upset. He doesn't understand what happened to him. The most important thing he wanted to let everyone know is how grateful he was that everybody stood by him. And that support, I think, is what got him through the last month. Despite the sample mismatch and Peter Ball's suspension being lifted, Sport Integrity Australia says the investigation into the matter is still going. Paul Green has described the whole process as poor and lengthy, arguing Sport Integrity Australia should be embarrassed about how it's been handled. 
U.S. Anti-Doping Agency is the world leader in this regard. They would never announce a test before a B sample confirmed an A and before a charge letter was issued. It would not happen. I'm hoping that Peter now will just get up, start training, and shrug it off, and hopefully the public get behind him and, and uh, understand that there, there, there seems to have been a, you know, a big mistake here. Dick Telford is a professorial fellow at the University of Canberra and an elite distance and middle distance coach with Athletics Australia. He says he always knew Peter Boll was innocent, partly because he was tested seven weeks after his last competition. Why would anyone be taking EPO at that stage? You know, Even if he was a cheat, which I know he's not, it'd be absolutely stupid even to think that someone would take it at that point when he'd been tested 15 times before with urine, with blood, uh, and all of those were negative. He's questioning the accuracy of the EPO testing. Just the nature of interpreting the test to determine whether the EPO molecular structure is minutely different from the, the EPO molecular structure that we produce ourselves. The scientists have been trying to determine you know, a foolproof method to test for EPO. They think they've got the answer, but there's that element of doubt. Should that testing regime be relied upon then to decide a sports person's future? I'd say it's very difficult to rely on it. How could you rely on a test where you you think it's positive the first time, but you're probably not sure? And the second time you think it's negative, but now they're saying, well, we're not sure about that either. How can that be a reliable test? Griffith University sports scientist Phil Bellinger explains it's not unusual for Sport Integrity Australia to follow up a sample mismatch with an investigation. This is not uh, or shouldn't be seen as uh, extra suspicion or anything. That's normally within the guidelines that they would follow up with their own uh, investigation as well. But he says it will take time for the further investigations to be wrapped up. Unfortunately, sometimes these things do take uh, quite a bit of time to gather all necessary evidence, so it could be weeks to months for sure. PM has contacted Sport Integrity Australia for further comment on how EPO tests are interpreted. Stephanie Smale reporting. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, war always exacts a heavy price, but now there's evidence that superbugs could be spreading for the, from the world's conflict zones. Antimicrobial resistance in conflict countries is higher, it's faster, and it's more aggressive. Hence, we are increasing the antibiotic resistance of bacteria in nature that are infecting humans. The pressure on RBA boss Philip Lowe is about to intensify ahead of an appearance before a Senate committee in Canberra tomorrow. But it's borrowers, particularly recent home buyers, who are being squeezed the hardest after nine interest rate rises, and according to the NAB, three more to come. Chief economist Alan Oster is one of the authors of a note which points to wages growth among the factors helping to keep inflation high. He joined me earlier. In very simple terms, the Reserve is now focusing very much uh, more heavily on inflation. And in the near term, what we're seeing is basically signs that inflation is still going to be very elevated. The wage pressure is going to accelerate. And also uh, what our business surveys and our internal data has been showing is that the economy is not slowing very much at all at present. So in that sort of circumstances, the RBA is more likely than not to keep going until they see some signs of some softening. 
And is that three interest rate rises that you predict, is that the minimum? Could there be even more? It's possible. We think that's more than enough. And we do think that the economy will be slowing by um, the middle of the year. And that will probably then be enough for them to sit and wait. So at this stage, I think it's balanced. Um, personally, I would probably prefer them to do less than that, but that's not what we've paid for. We've paid to say, what will they do? Um, and so in that sort of circumstances, I think three is probably um, the medium sort of forecast you would do given where we are. A KPMG report out today points out that if there are three more rate rises, that'll knock $20 billion in economic activity out of the economy, a full percentage point of growth. What is the risk that the RBA is inflicting too much pain on Australians? Well, one of, there's always a risk, and the risk is basically because in very simple terms, it takes about 12 months before monetary policy flows through, and I think that is true. So um, they started in May last year, so you probably shouldn't be expecting a lot of slowing before May. Uh, we have a significantly lower growth outlook than the Reserve Bank, so the Reserve Bank's talking about 1.5% growth during the course of this year and next. We're talking about 07 uh, for this year, maybe 0.9 the year after. So, yes, I think the chances of a hard landing have clearly gone up. Uh, but at this stage... Uh, what, what do you mean think? by hard landing? I mean, basically, you get into a recession. Um, but I, I, at this stage, what we're seeing is essentially very little growth from, the, from essentially the back end of this year, but not sort of going backwards. So if we are talking the possibility of a recession, yep. how much worse is that than the problem of inflation that we're trying to tackle? My personal view has always been try and avoid recessions at all time, particularly if they're nasty. So uh, we would basically say that at this stage, probably you're going to be okay. But I think given essentially very little growth in the back end of this year, that's why I think they'll be rate cutting early next year. Because consumer sentiment is, well, very low. A, a Westpac survey today says it's yep. plummeted 7%, back near historic lows, weaker than during the GFC. What are we to make of that? I think you need to be careful because that's basically a measure of how concerned consumers are, not what they're actually doing. And one way we can sort of think about that in a very simple terms is when we ask business in retail and wholesale how things are going, they say, great. And then we say, how confident are you that you're going to keep going like that? They give us a really bad reading. So they sort of, for confidence, so they're about the worst on confidence as you're going forward. And all our internal data is saying consumers still spending, even though they might be scared about what's going to happen as you go forward. So what's the takeaway? More pain to come for, for borrowers and shoppers? I think more pain to come. And I think basically what will happen is the consumer will slow because you're going to get a lot. The consumer is about three months behind the Reserve Bank in terms of paying. And also you've got a big increase in, for, for a lot of people who have essentially fixed their loans and they're going to move from 2% in a sort of fixed loan to something approaching five and a half to six in a variable. So that's quite a hit. But the good news, if to the extent there is some good news, is I think Australia's in a better position than some economies overseas. So let me give you the example of New Zealand. We're expecting June, September, December to be negative in New Zealand and significantly negative, like minus one and a quarter percent, something like that. Whereas in Australia, we're talking 
Well, basically, we're still talking about 0.7% growth, but not much in the back end of the year. So we're much better off than a lot of other countries. But, you know, you've, you've got this psychological problem that people are saying, I've got less money. The value of my home is down another 10 or 11%. And they're going to, you know, it, I think one of the problems is the paradox of thrift. That, and that really, in simple terms, in economics, is everyone tries to get thriftier and the economy suffers because there's not enough spending going on. Alan Oster, thanks for taking us through all that. Thank you. And Alan Oster is the chief economist at NAB. A growing number of Australians are in need of affordable housing and experts say decades of underinvestment has created a major shortfall. This week, Labor's $10 billion housing plan is under the microscope in Parliament amid concerns from the opposition and the Greens that mean it's likely the government will need to make changes. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Australia's housing affordability problems are keenly felt in Tasmania. Centre Care Evolve manages about 2,700 social and affordable homes in the state and according to General Manager James Norman, there are not a lot of vacancies. Normally we have very, very quick turnover uh, times. Obviously there's sometimes a bit of uh, uh, opportunity to, to do a bit of maintenance, upgrade properties and what have you. But uh, from when properties are available to when they're tenanted is uh, is pretty fast because there's uh, there's certainly people waiting at the moment. Rising rent costs are causing more people to turn up for help. There's a, a bit of a gap in the affordable um, housing area. Uh, there's been a lot of investment and quite rightly so in the social housing space, but probably less investment over recent times in the affordable housing area. So we would certainly... Um, welcome any you know developments in that way because I think it is there is a there is a, a bit of a shortfall in the market there. Federal Labor has a plan to begin tackling that problem. Key to its housing strategy is the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, estimated to generate up to $500 million a year to be spent on the construction of new homes, as well as to repair and improve housing for Indigenous communities and provide additional crisis accommodation for women and children escaping domestic violence. In the first five years, Labor wants 20,000 social housing properties and 10,000 affordable homes built Built through the fund. Housing Minister Julie Collins says the affordable homes are aimed at key workers. When we talk about the 10,000 affordable homes in the first five years of the fund, we are talking about uh, affordable rentals for key workers in good locations, close to transport, close to jobs and close to education institutions. The federal opposition won't support the plan, arguing it'll do little to address the housing issue. The Greens say it doesn't go far enough. They want $5 billion to be available for construction. Housing Minister Julie Collins defends the scheme. So we've been talking to um, people right across the parliament. Uh, you know, what we want is more social and affordable homes on the ground as quickly as we can get them there. Based on the best advice, they need to be the right homes in the right places. Uh, but we had a clear election commitment. We have a clear mandate for a $10 billion social and affordable housing fund. Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young was asked whether her party would ultimately stand in the way. Our concern is that this... Uh, package um, just doesn't cut it. That this package, um, you know, it's 30,000 homes 
over five years when the need right now is so much more than that. Dr Michael Fotheringham is the Managing Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. He says the proposed 30,000 homes will be an important contribution but it's not going to solve the country's housing woes. It's not enough to address the, the total need we have in this country. We have you know, decades of underinvestment in social and affordable housing. And so while this is heading in the right direction and trying to restore some of that shortfall, um, it won't address the problem in a matter of a few years. So should the government aim higher? as the Greens suggest. Well, the challenge there is is that uh, we don't actually have the workforce or the supply chains to deliver that. So there's a need to, I guess, balance the ideal, what we'd like to achieve, what, you know, best of all possible worlds we would achieve, but with what's actually practical. Um, so what the government are doing is setting ambitious targets, and they are ambitious targets, um, but they are also achievable targets. That's Dr Michael Fotheringham from the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, Alexandra Humphreys reporting. The earthquakes in Syria and neighbouring Turkey are now known to have killed about 40,000 people. While Turkey has seen an influx of international help, the situation is more challenging in war-torn Syria. Mutaz Adam is Oxfam's country director in Syria. He's in the field in Aleppo. Mutaz Adam, thank you for your time. What is the situation there in Aleppo now? Okay, thank you for this question. Actually, to understand the gravity of the situation in Aleppo right now, uh, let me just uh, take 30 seconds to tell you about the situation in Aleppo on the day before the earthquake hit. Um, so I... As you know, overall, uh, Syria has been going through a, uh, a conflict for the past uh, 12 years. So the country is dealing with the impact of that. 90% uh, of the population in Syria are living under the poverty line. Nine out of 10 Syrians don't know where the next meal is coming from. In total, 50% of the infrastructure is is destroyed. Two million kids are out of have been out of the school system for for uh, uh, for years. So this is the situation on the day before the earthquake uh, uh, hit. Now, with the earthquake, we are dealing uh, with around 50, uh, 1,500 people uh, uh, lost their lives, almost 2,500 injured, and still there are an unknown number of people that are still under um, uh, the rebel. Of course, after one week, we are losing any hope that uh, people will be pulled uh, alive from under the, uh, uh, the rebel. We are racing against time and uh, weather at the same time. What is complicating the um, uh, rescue, uh, search and rescue operation is the fact that uh, the government of uh, Syria capacity is very limited. Uh, there is a major shortage in the heavy equipment, excavation equipment, um, ambulances, uh, fire trucks. Uh, there is a major shortage of that. I, you know, when I walk around, uh, I was walking around the city yesterday, and I've seen people actually using still after one week using their bare hands uh, to dig their loved one um, uh, under the, from from the rubble. So, is so any aid getting in from outside? 
Um, very, uh, very limited, actually. There are some neighboring countries that have contributed some uh, humanitarian uh, supplies and some ambulances, uh, but this is all scratching the surface uh, um, of, uh, of the need. You, you mentioned the number who have lost their lives and, and those injured. What about those who don't have shelter? So the estimation that there have been around uh, 300,000 uh, displaced uh, around Aleppo city. And by the way, Aleppo is not the only um, uh, governorate that has been impacted. There are four governorates that have been impacted, Aleppo, Latakia, um, Idlib, and, um, and Hama. Uh, but in Aleppo, there are around 300,000 displaced. Um, there are 126 shelters that have opened, and um, schools, mosques, uh, public buildings, and other uh, collective shelters. 30,000 are uh, hosted in these collective shelters, but the vast majority of it um, are people just um, still in the streets. I've seen actually people now living in cemeteries, um, uh, people living with uh, family members. But also what, uh, what, we, what we need to remember is that family members and host communities are also um, impacted and they are very exhausted to be able to host uh, um, anybody. So still we see people wandering the, the streets, people are hungry, they're, uh, they're still scared. A lot of people, even those whose homes uh, uh, were not damaged, they are scared to go back. Mm. The city of Aleppo has started the assessment of the partially damaged uh, uh, buildings and now the numbers that they're talking about that almost between 10 to 15 percent of the city needs to be uh, 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 collapsed. Mm. These buildings are not safe for people to uh, to go back. Mutaz Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Mutaz Adam is from Oxfam. He's based currently in Aleppo in northern Syria. Well, as if the carnage and destruction caused by war was not enough, new international research warns the next global superbug could be developing in one of the world's conflict zones right now. And it's not just the high number of injuries and overburdened medical facilities creating ideal conditions for antibiotic-resistant infections. Heavy metals contained in many weapons are also a problem. Nick Grimm has more. It's been called a silent pandemic. Medicines known as antimicrobials, which includes antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals and antiparasitics, slowly losing their power to fight infections. So bacteria are becoming more and more resistant to antibiotics and that's due to the misuse and abuse that we have been doing to antibiotics. And resistance is not a strange phenomenon to us. It's actually found in nature. But what we are doing, we're actually speeding it up. Microbiologist Antoine Abou-Fayad from the American University of Beirut in Lebanon is part of an international team that's published research today examining how antimicrobial resistance is being supercharged in the world's conflict zones. First of all, when you look at it from the big picture, antimicrobial resistance in conflict countries is higher, it's faster and it's more aggressive. The study focusing on one of the most strife-torn parts of the world, Iraq. We're getting uh, starbursts, seeming starbursts, in the, the black sky. As CNN and other world media outlets have reported, it's endured years of heavy conflict. Saddam Hussein's repressive regime warring with Iran, crushing internal dissent and invading neighbouring Kuwait, triggering the first Gulf War in 1991. Well, there's uh, anti-aircraft gunfire going into the sky. 
then, more than a decade later in 2003, the second Gulf War was waged. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. And its possession of chemical and biological weapons and its pursuit of a nuclear capability poses a real and unacceptable threat to the stability and security of our world. And while weapons of mass destruction were not found to exist, out of the instability that followed the fall of the regime, the rise of Islamic State brought Iraq yet more death and destruction. Almost a year, non-stop shelling has targeted the jihadist groups. Fire! But what media reports like that one from French broadcaster France 24 could not foresee was how the decades of war and conflict would lead to a catastrophic rise in resistance to antibiotics and other antimicrobials. And infections caused by battlefield trauma and unhygienic facilities are only part of the problem. As Antoine Abou-Fayard explains, superbugs have also thrived as a result of the munitions that have rained down on Iraq, scattering heavy metals such as selenium, cadmium, nickel, zinc and copper. So, for example, copper is very well known to actually have a very high ability to kill bacteria at a certain concentration. And what we are doing when we have conflict, we're actually increasing the amount of these metals in nature where these bacteria exist, hence making them resistant to these heavy metals. So this is a very important take, and it's confirmed with what's happened in history. Peter Collignon is a professor of infectious diseases at the ANU Medical School. So what they've shown in Iraq is, I think, has been shown before. If you look at World War I and World War II, for instance, there was a lot more spread of a bug called meningococcus, which causes meningitis, particularly in troops. And even the Spanish flu of 1918, a lot of the deaths were due to secondary bacterial infections, the pneumonia germ, etc., which was, again, spread by crowded people together in poor conditions because of war, poverty, breakdown in normal structures. The research has been published in the medical journal BMJ Global Health. Nick Grimm with that report. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Till then, good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.